0: Hello, I'm Sari arho from Brussels. I am Business Finland, strategic futurist, China analyst, visiting scholar at the University of Helsinki uh, about China's foreign and Cold War relations and a futures fellow at Mercator Institute of China Studies, MERICS. I'm talking today with Didi Kirsten Tattlow from Berlin. She's a senior fellow at German Council on Foreign Relations in Berlin and Senior Non-Resident Fellow at Project Synopsis in Prague, in the Czech Republic. And we are talking today of a recently published book, China's Quest for Foreign Technology Beyond Espionage, that Didi has co-authored and co-edited. In your book, Didi, you talk how the foreign technology transfers, whether licitly or illicitly done, have been fueling China's development and innovation, and much on the cost of ours. And as we know, the Chinese companies enter the global markets with lower-cost products backed by government subsidies and uh, also with other means that our companies, nor governments, cannot really counter. How deep and wide this problem really runs.
1: Right, Sorry. Hello Very and thank you very much. It's good to be here. Um, you know, indeed, I think that what we're looking at with technology And China is something profoundly different from what we're used to uh, from technology development in the so-called West, in which I would include Japan and Korea. Because the, the Communist Party in China has historically, since 1949, sought to identify and bring home technology from the more developed countries Um, through what they call um, all-means-possible, shi. that's a very important phrase, and that covers the range from legal through to uh, grey zone through to illegal, espionage being on the kind of hard illegal end of things, and legal including partial uh, issues such as joint venture, legal technology transfers. The really concerning bit is the grey zone in the middle, which is probably about 95% of technology transfer. And so to achieve this technology transfer from the West in order to build China up to be wealthy and powerful, as is the Communist Party's goal, um, it it really has deployed since 1949... Um, a very clear policy. And this, you know, then includes early technology transfers from the Soviet Union, a documentation system that began to really become very large in around 1956. We're then talking about sending abroad millions of students and scholars um, after Deng Xiaoping uh, regained power around, you know, around the early 1980s time. And we're seeing um, enormous um, technology flow back to China through a huge system of individuals, but also who are partially organized, at least partially, but also through professional associations, through te- technology transfer parks, through uh, outward investment, through all kinds of methods. So yeah, it's a very different system yeah. from what the West has. And it's one that um, these open societies and open markets of the West find very difficult to deal with.
0: Yeah, I agree. And what really struck me was the revelation that Western societies um, our legislation ethics policies even values we are not really equipped to tackle the magnitude of the of the challenge and um and I don't think we neither you or me we we don't see any signs that China would be changing her behavior and in this slide um I don't also see that the um, the comprehensive investment agreement between the EU and China could become a reality unless the EU gives in somehow. What do you think about that?
1: I think you're right. I mean, I think there has been indigenous innovation starting up for sure off the back of this Western technology. It's like um, uh, very, being a very, very early adapter, for example, that's been going on for a long time, but also real innovation. But I don't think that China can change because its entire economy, the the politics of the system of the Chinese Communist Party are really built around this system by now. And for the European Union's comprehensive agreement on investment to be meaningful, it would have to tackle this massive technology transfer, which we've documented in our book, um, which is simply a reality. This course is nothing to do with uh, even with politics per se, it's just documenting a kind of a economic statecraft or an industrial statecraft, if you like.
0: Yeah, but do we have any other options than left than than protect ourselves better and become like less open? You you give some recommendations in your book. What could be done? Could you shortly give your key
1: takeaway on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the real, that's of course the really big question: what are we going to do about it? And I think. One thing that needs to happen is we need to start thinking in a non-binary fashion, if you like, between, you know, full engagement or full decoupling. We need to start to reorient our priorities about what technology do we absolutely need to protect in the interest of strategic and democratic security for democratic systems, which are vulnerable to autocratic systems from outside. Um, Because we are so open, we need to establish standards. What do we need? What must we protect? These these standards need to be constantly updated. We need to interact between Europe, between the United States, between Australia, for example. We need to talk more about military-civilian fusion policies in China that make all really pretty much all technology vulnerable. And I see that we are sadly running out of time. Sorry, it's such a fascinating Yeah, I see thing. that too. So yes. thank you thank Didi, you. a lot. And we can continue this Great. thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.